Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. I'm your host, Danielle. Today, we will talk about the history of Shenandoah National Park. This is the first of two parts to end our series on Shenandoah. I was fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with three historians who researched from three different perspectives, Shenandoah National Park's creation and the people who were displaced. Sarah Gregg from the University of Kansas focuses on land use policy. Katrina Powell at Virginia Tech researched letters written by families displaced due to the park's creation. Katrina grew up just outside of Shenandoah. She spent her childhood in the National Park, grew up hearing stories, and went to school with children whose families were relocated from the park. Audrey Horning is an anthropology and archaeology professor at William & Mary in Virginia. She conducted a multi-year survey of rural mountain settlements in the Virginia Blue Ridge from 1995 to 1998. Links for their books on this topic will be included in the show notes on Everybody's National Parks website. We will begin with how the park came to Shenandoah. The Department of Interior was considering where it would put large national parks on the East Coast. There was a sense that there were bids and proposals coming in from several states trying to make a case for why a national park should be located in a particular place. There were a variety of different uh, land tenure regimes in the park. So there were some large landowners, forest companies or investment companies. Um, what is now Skyland was initially purchased as a copper interest by um, George Freeman Pollock's father. And Pollock went up there as a young man because he was an amateur taxidermist and wanted to see what he could find and discovered that this was actually a really beautiful place. And so he began planning for a resort in the mountains to bring Washingtonians and Baltimoreans out of the city and into the mountains. Um, so there were other large uh, landed interests. And in fact, the, um, the case that brought um, the Shenandoah Project before the Supreme Court was brought by a man named, I think his name was Robert Villa, and he was a relative, uh, he was actually a Pennsylvanian, but whose family owned a large tract of land in what is now the park and uh, considered the seizure of that land by the uh, Commonwealth of Virginia a violation of the, the Constitution, that these landowners were who lived elsewhere were having their constitutional rights uh, undermined by the Commonwealth of Virginia. And so... All of the land acquisition for the park took place um, through the Commonwealth. And um, because the National Park Service at this point was uh, not in the business of real estate, essentially. Um, and this, I think, is one of the most interesting stories about the park because it required a dance between Virginia politicians um, during the 1920s who were uh, very concerned about good roads and finding new economic avenues for the state's economy and a pretty small government, uh, U.S. government, which then transitioned rather radically during the 1930s as anti-New Deal politicians in Virginia continued to work with New Dealers in order to push the uh, culmination of the park project. And so the Commonwealth of Virginia was um, the most interested party in the creation of the park. They had lobbied for it beginning in 1924. 
And they were ultimately, as I said, responsible for the real estate dealings that led to the creation of this new national park. And so um, there's several businessmen who owned property either in the park or near the park um, made a proposal to um, try to convince folks in Washington to locate the park uh, in Shenandoah. Um, Same thing happened with the Great Smoky Mountains National Park as well. And so in the end, um, the the National Park Service decided to have a park here in Virginia. One of the more well-known businessmen, there were several, but one of them was George Pollock, who owned Skyland. And so many, he often would have events and invite people to his um, hotel and property um, that that are in, there's and still today being uh, run in the park in Skyland and whining and dining uh, federal officials and being invited down to go horseback riding to go on hikes and to be shown the beauty of the Blue Ridge Mountains um, and to showcase Shenandoah as a play a potential place for the park. He and some other local businessmen. Uh, worked on persuading the Department of Interior to found a, a national park here in Virginia. And um, I think their motivation was economic. You know, it was during, it was right before the Depression, actually, when they were interested in this, but they really thought, saw that tourism would be a great way to um, develop the state of Virginia. And I think they thought that if we had a national park in Virginia, that it would increase the um, economy and increase their own um, revenue. Look at some of the old, the early brochures, and they minimized that there were families living in the park. So one of the brochures says there are a few mountain men who live there um, and made it seem like there, were, number one, weren't very many people who live there, and number two, that it wouldn't be a problem to relocate them. Um, and that and that is where issues of literacy for me um, and representations of the mountaineer started to come into play is that um, the the fact that that they wouldn't be a problem or it wouldn't um, impact the sort of economic development that that the businessmen saw as potential for the state of Virginia and for their own um, for their own wealth um, was turned out to be, you know, an, you know, a lasting legacy of, um, uh, of the history of the park. The National Park Service told the state of Virginia they, they would not form the park until the state of Virginia owned all the land. And so they started going around surveying individual families. so-called sociological study that came out of the University of Chicago, written about five communities in the 1930s, and this particular study portrayed the people living in this region as um, literally not of the 20th century, living a a medieval lifestyle, so uh, quite a stark portrait, and a portrait that um, was used at the time to support the removal of residents to create the park. Folks moved up to the upper part of Corbin Hollow, probably to work at the local resort. The local resort was established by George Freeman Pollock, Um, who is um, one of the more interesting characters in the early history of Shenandoah, a very charismatic figure, kind of somebody I would call an operator. Um, And he was 
central to the whole park establishment um, movement. I think really for quite self-serving re- reasons. You know, he was trying to make money out of his resort. He was not a very good businessman as far as we can gather. Um, he thought that by um, getting involved with the establishment of the park, he'd be able to retain his resort and um, and profit, basically, from all the people who were coming. So it was in his interest, one way or the other, to um, promote the creation of the park. So he would invite people to come and stay at his resort, you know, who were important in you know getting them on side for uh, the park establishment. And what he would do is he would um, take them on very choreographed trips uh, around the proposed park area. And he would always, and was very open about this, would take them uh, into Corbin Hollow. And the reason he would do that, as he stated himself, was to demonstrate um, the abject poverty in his estimation of people living in the park to support the notion that people would be much better off if they were moved out of the area. Uh, And I should back up and say that at least 500 families were removed from the lands that became Shenandoah National Park. So George Freeman Pollock basically is using the you know the, the economic hardship of his nearest neighbors and uh, his employees as a way to promote his own um, aims for the park creation. Uh, as far as I can tell, you know Pollock is not someone known for paying his bills, and it seems likely to me that if he's not paying his creditors, he's probably not paying his employees either. So it's undeniable that people were economically um, in dire straits in parts of the park area, and particularly in Corbin Hollow. Um, But it wasn't because they were backward and isolated um, in the way they were portrayed. It was probably precisely because they were not backward and isolated, you know, that they were actually doing what so many other early 20th century Americans did, which is try to go out and earn a living through working for somebody else. Uh, but, of course, it's the Depression period, so nobody is doing particularly well. And if you're working for George Freeman Pollock, you're not getting paid. You're living in a part of the park which is not really letting you uh, grow your own foods. Um, you know, you're not keeping much in the way of livestock. Then you've got, you've got a real problem. You've got a difficulty. And I think Pollock um, played on that. So he supported... Um, trips, you know, with journalists to talk about what they saw in the Blue Ridge and, and to look at, um, you know, some very, you know, unusual cases in Corbin Hollow to speak for the entirety um, of the park area. Uh, and he also seems to have supported um, a woman named Miriam Sizer, who was an Orange County school teacher who also got involved with the park creation movement. And she spent time um, basically compiling her own observations, which she fed back to the um, sociologist from the University of Chicago, Mandel Sherman, who then, with a journalist, Thomas Henry, wrote the book Hollow Folk, uh, which is, you know, it's filled with inaccuracies and misperceptions, but it was very effective in convincing the wider world that actually it would be a good thing for people in the park area. Businessmen were 
sort of minimize the impact of there being lots of families living on the land. And what they and then once the National Park Service figured out there were so many families and said, no, state of Virginia, you have to remove all those families in order to kind of get the broader community behind that way that mountain families were represented was that they were all poor, illiterate. Um, they broke the law by making moonshine. Um, there was all this representation of the, the mountaineer as being uneducated and unlawful, and that, in fact, moving them off the mountains would be, quote-unquote, good for them. And so that representation of them as not being able to care for themselves um, or not being able to make good decisions uh, for themselves and, and about the way they lived was in direct contrast to what I was seeing in the letters of people who were able to negotiate, people who were not isolated, um, people who um, understood what their rights were, um, even if they didn't have a lot of power in negotiating those rights, they still were trying to um, figure out how to negotiate that and took pencil to paper anyway, um, given kind of the the um, gravity of the situation. And so in the letter, the letters don't contain much resistance to the, the existence of the park. The resistance that comes through is in this change and in this relocation process, you should um, provide the kind of assistance that we deserve. So there's a lot of ways that people write about themselves as being worthy of of the park's attention, um, of being cooperative. You know, I've been cooperative, and that's why um, you should help me in this situation. And you might know that at exactly the same time, the Blue Ridge Parkway is being formed, and and this Great Smoky Mountains National Park is being formed. People. Uh, in the Blue Ridge Parkway, some of them were given what are called conservation easements. So they were allowed to remain living there um, while the parkway was being built. However, um, it didn't work out that way in Shenandoah National Park. But in that, in those first few years, there was a sense that um, families might be able to remain. And so when they were when families were asked, you know, would you mind if there was a park here, didn't have any objection because they, they might have understood that they would be able to live there. Now, some people think that they were deliberately um, lied to, but I think that there was a feeling from the state of Virginia that, that fa some families might just be able to remain and live um, on one of these conservation easements. Well, then as administrations changed um, and things started to develop further, um, it became clear that the National Park Service wouldn't take over the land without moving people out. And um, Arno Kammerer, who was the Secretary of the Department of Interior in particular, made that big change um, and said that every family would have to be moved out. The Commission on Conservation and Development encouraging the Virginia Assembly to do what was called a blanket condemnation. So rather than in, go by individual land track um, and convince people to either sell their land or to, you know, to forcibly evict them, they did what was called a blanket condemnation where the entire area was blanketly condemned. And that just made for a quicker, swifter process of being able to move people out. Um, and so that as you can imagine, created a lot of resentment where families were sort of under the impression that they wouldn't have to leave their homes 
Um, and it also made for, uh, there's a, I think there's an impression that people didn't resist the park and why didn't they, why wasn't there a collective resistance? And I think it was in part because of these sort of steps that ended up happening that um, diffused any way to resist. Um, and again, I'm not sure how malicious it was, but it was just sort of this convergence of things happening um, and layers of things happening, administrations changing and um, having a little bit different approach to the founding of the park that then made for this moment then where it became clear that all the families had to go. Um, and, and by then it was too late for there to be any collective resistance. Now, Sarah Gregg and Katrina Powell will talk about what happened to the families when they were told they had to leave. Many visitors are not aware that families were displaced in order to form the park. 500 families were displaced, approximately 150 relocated willingly. We will learn about resettlement housing policy and life tenure, which was certain people were permitted to stay in the park after the park's creation. There were 300 families that remained within the park boundaries during the interim period between 1934 and 1938. Many of those families wrote letters to officials requesting assistance of some form during the transition period from when the park was created until they were resettled, moved out, or found new places to live. Katrina studied the letters written by these families trying to negotiate their relocation and different aspects of their transition. The resettlement administration was working toward um, providing some families um, with relocation homes, with resettlement housing. Um, but one could only qualify for a resettlement home if one was the owner of a piece of property in Shenandoah. And so there were lots of extended families who lived in the park. So a patriarch, my grandfather, may have owned all the land, but his sons or daughters and their spouses and children would live in various parts of the, um, you know, various um, portions of the land, um, but they didn't necessarily own the land. They might have inherited it once the patriarch had um, had died, but they didn't own it. They were living there with their extended families, and so they were not eligible for resettlement housing. And they, there were also a lot of tenant farmers. And so if you had, but they may have lived there for generations, but if you didn't own the land, you were not eligible for resettlement housing. The other reason some, even, and even some landowners were not eligible for resettlement housing because they couldn't qualify for a government loan. So you, in order to get a resettlement house, you had to be able to pay for it, um, to pay back the loan for it. And as many were especially in this in this group, um, they were subsistence farmers. They had no sources, outside source of income, and so they didn't qualify. So this, you know, set up for some real heartbreak uh, for people as they tried to figure out where they would go and how and um, how they would how they would live after they had to leave their mountain home. One of the ways that families were helped during this time was. Um, the Resettlement Administration came and did a survey of the um, area to try to figure out who was living there and who needed what kind of help. And some of that assistance was coming from the um, Department of Public Welfare, which was a very new organization at that time. Some of that assistance was coming from local churches that had been 
um, assisting families in the area for before even before the park was founded. Um, and some of the assistance was coming from like the Federal Emergency Relief Administration and the um, Resettlement Administration, all government entities, federal entities that were part of um, um, were, that were already established and, and were helping during the time of the Depression. And so as families were trying to figure out where they would go, the various kinds of groups were trying to help them. And as they did that, as the land transferred from the state of Virginia, the state of Virginia condemned land and um, came into ownership of the land through the federal right of eminent domain um, and then donated that um, land to the federal government to form the national park. And in that interim space between the land being condemned and it being donated to the federal government is when family members were writing letters in correspondence with the um, state and park officials to try to negotiate that relocation or that, that interim period. And part of the reason they had to negotiate was because they were allowed to remain living there for that transition time to try to help with that transition. And so, but, but their land no longer belonged to them, so they were required to sign what was called a special use permit. And that permit permit was um, a, a for, very formal document on Department of Interior uh, uh, letterhead that delineated the kinds of rules that people would have to follow while they lived on the federal government's land, which, of course, was land that had once been theirs. And so there were some specific rules about um, <clears throat> not taking any of the materials from the homes or the fencing wire around their gardens or not uh, cultivating um, uh, their crops for um, for sale. Um, so there's these particular kinds of rules. So a lot of the correspondence has to do with negotiating some of that, trying to um, make sure that they had permission to do certain kinds of things. So, for instance, um, some of the letters ask for permission to pick all the apples off their property. Or if they had already moved off their land, they were letters about going back to their property to, to harvest um, the, either their apples or the potatoes um, and that kind of thing. Um, and in some cases, people were asking for uh, permission to take the wire from their garden. So as they were moving um, out of the park into a different location, um, they they thought that it made a lot of common sense to be able to take the wire that was already there um, and it wasn't going to be used for anything to take it and, and use it at their new house. Um, so the, the, the letters um, asked for particular kinds of assistance. So there was a list that was generated um, of people who were, get, who were granted what they call life tenure, and they were usually the elderly or the infirm, and so it was people who probably were later in life um, and, and really uh, maybe didn't have um, much option to leave, and so they were granted uh, life tenure uh, in part because they were older. Um, and the, the list was about 40 people. And I think some, some ended up staying, um, and, um, 
Annie Shank was one of the last ones um, living in the park. And I can't remember the exact date uh, when she died, but I think she died in the early 70s. Um, uh, And a couple of other people who were granted life tenure remained there for a while, but then um, eventually moved down off the mountain um, just to have closer access to doctors and family. Um, Yeah, so that was... um, a, a way to help try to figure out a care for people who, older people who, who didn't have much of an option. There were people who were glad for the opportunity to be resettled, um, who felt like they had a pretty unsustainable future in the mountains, that they had a small parcel of land and a lot of children and, uh, you know, erratic access to education. And they, um, they said, okay, you know, we would love a government-subsidized house on good agricultural land and machinery and livestock. And they moved happily, um, at least for a time, into some of these um, federal emergency relief administration uh, subsistence homesteads. Um, There were just as many people who said, I have no interest in leaving the mountains and uh, you have no right to take my land. This is a, you know, this is a a conspiracy of the elite to displace people from their homes and I will not be moved. Um, Over the course of a couple of years, and certainly by 1937, many of the people who had initially protested against uh, being moved had, had, I don't know if maybe their peace with it is the right way to describe it, but had um, had given in, um, had had essentially determined that there wasn't going to be um, uh, a way of maintaining their land uh, in the face of this increasing uh, uh, demonstration of power, I suppose of state power. And so uh, they left. They either took a, a subsistence homestead or they moved with family just outside of the park and into a different part of the mountains, or they moved into the cities. Um, it really depends. And I don't think anybody ever did a, a sociological um, survey of what happened to all of the families who were bought out of the park space. But the um, New Deal agencies did build five communities exclusively for um, the people moved out of the Blue Ridge, basically scattered throughout the Piedmont and the and the Shenandoah Valley. And those were, you know, small-ish farms on land that had been severely degraded, but which the agencies essentially um, built back up using their agricultural expertise and uh, the labor of these subsistence homesteaders. Um, and these houses had, you know, indoor plumbing, much to the dismay of um, Harry Floodbird, who by then was serving in the U.S. Senate. Um, and uh, and then other people fought like the devil. So there were a couple of people, um, at least in the central part of the park, who were forcibly evicted. Um, one of them, whose last name was Jewel, uh, was carried out of his house. Um, he had been a tenant farmer and basically said, you have no right um, to buy out my landowner without paying me some compensation. And I don't believe he was ever compensated. Um, but the most famous uh, 
Ivixie was a man by the name of Malaxanon Kleiser, and he also was um, carried out of his home, uh, I think, in 1937. Um, and uh, for the rest of his life, he um, he wrote letters to uh, the president, basically uh, pleading his case, begging to be sent back uh, to his home, saying that his wife, who had once uh, you know, baked pies and lived happily, was now having to take in washing for a living. He was a broken man because of the uh, the greed of the state government. And he really did see this as a, as a Virginia as well as a federal uh, assault. So those stories, the, the Kleiser story, got some degree of national press attention um, and are really... Um, chilling, frankly. I mean, there's a, but a part of my book where I talk about Kaiser's description of what it was like to be uh, displaced from his home. And he was just the most eloquent, I would say, of many people who saw this um, as a profound violation of their rights as Americans. Now Katrina Powell will read excerpts from letters written by families being displaced. There are a couple of letters written by people who you can tell they love the land very much and they would love to stay and they are are trying to be cooperative. And the idea of being cooperative was really important in a lot of these letters, that they would position themselves as people who were cooperative. And then that would um, hopefully then persuade either the park ranger or the superintendent to negotiate with them and help them with, with whatever they needed. So, for instance, one of the letters comes from a man named Walter Dellen Taylor, and he, he listed his address as Skyland, but that usually meant, you know, that his mail came through there, but he, he was located in uh, Madison County. And one of his letters um, asked, he, well, he wrote several letters, and many of them asked for a job in the park. Um, and he tries to persuade the um the superintendent that he should give him a job because he knows about all the plants and animals in the park. Um, so one of the things he says was, um, I want to ask if we are to remain in the park until next fall as we live in Madison County and they have not prepared us a home yet. If we're going to remain here till fall, I want to ask you to write me along this line just what we can depend on. And I want to ask if you can give me some work of some kind, as I have not had much work since um, I were in a great, you know, I was in, in great guard, and I hope that you may, and I hope that you may find me something to do. And I will thank you very much for what information you can give me along all this. And so, and he then in another, a different letter talks about his, what he knows about the area. He says, um, there are many streams in the park area, um, and as I, I have learned and caught hundreds of other ways, and I thought you ought to know this um, so that you might hire me. And, and then, again, that kind of goes on listing what he knows about um, animals and birds and plants. And so, to me, that maybe isn't a direct endorsement of the park, but it also shows a real love of the area and the land and um and wanting to stay there and be helpful to um, the park officials. So he obviously wants a job for himself, but I think is also trying to work within the system as it was. Rebecca Bogger lived in um, Rockingham County, and she says, 
Um, Dear sir, the house I live in is three small rooms, and they are not one piece of it plain lumber, all rough back in here and the high top mountain, and you can't get up here with a truck nor a wagon. You just have to slide it out. Would you be kind enough to give me this little building when the people move out of the park? Up in here, people don't slip around and get the CCC boys to burn it up, and I hope you would rather give it to me than for them to burn it up. I wouldn't go ahead and take a thing and not ask you all for them. I wish you'd come back here and see where we live. I believe you would certainly give me this building if you don't believe that I live up here on this mountain. Just like I'm writing to you, I just wrote and asked Mr. Burt if I could save a window out of one house. I wrote him and told him, and he said he was coming to get them. My husband was a veteran in the World War, and he has never got a thing. Well, I will close. Hope you will make up your mind and give me this building. As ever, yours truly, Mrs. Lloyd Bogger. And I just, I love that letter because of what it, there's lots of um, non-standard use of English. There's uh, lots of non-standard spellings, um, incomplete sentences, and that kind of thing. But she, she's an example of um, a lot of the people who wrote letters at that time, people who didn't have a whole lot of formal education. The letters themselves are really beautiful little artifacts. They're all handwritten um, in pencil, and the paper that it was written on written on is all yellowing um, from from age, but they look the paper is little small, about five by seven pieces of paper that look like come from a school tablet. And I I find this really compelling because she's in this situation where she needs um, materials from the building. Um, and th as I mentioned before, this was a typical kind of request that if they could just have the lumber from the building rather than the CCC boys burn it up. And to them, it was a, a logical thing. Like, why would you burn it all up when someone some, a family member could actually use it in building, rebuilding another building somewhere else. Um, and then she throws in this um, way to try to persuade the, um, to persuade Mr. Lasseter that her husband was a veteran in the World War and trying to appeal to him emotionally about um, why he should be able to, why he should help her family. Um, and so I, that's one of many that are like that. And, and I thought she was, for me, it's one of the best letters um, to show the kinds of interaction and negotiation with someone who was in an important position of power over her. And if you sort of look at the handwritten letter written by her, someone who didn't have a whole lot of formal education, and then you look at the letters that Lasseter wrote back to people um, they're on the Department of Interior letterhead. They're all typed. They're on this onion skin paper um, because they were carbon copies made. Um, and so um, it's just a fascinating juxtaposition between someone with um, a different level of literacy than um, the government official. And yet, knowing her uh, relative position of power, she wrote to him anyway. And you see that theme running throughout a lot of the letters of, you know, people in pretty desperate situations trying to figure out how they can get some help or some relief. Um, and and a lot of them defer to the government official saying things like, I'm so sorry to bother you, I don't mean to bother you, or I never caused the park no trouble. Um, they would say things like that, and yet they, they made the request anyway. 
not just one story about the founding of Shenandoah Park and not just one story about the kind of people who lived there. Um, there were lots of these little hidden stories um, that countered what we thought we knew about who lived there. Um, and um, I think it's also really important to point out that there were some families who were relieved to leave their mountain homes. Um, it wasn't a universally bitter experience. Um, I did some oral history interviews after doing uh, my, or while in the process of doing my first book, I had to gain permission in order to publish the letters. And to get permission, I got in touch with a lot of descendants of the letter writers. And a couple of the people I interviewed talked about their grandmother or grandfather being really happy that they moved down off the mountain and were excited to have electricity and running water. And that's an important part of the story, too. Um, and then, but there were also families who talked about their grandparents never recovering from the move and feeling better, bitter about it for the rest of their lives. The impact that has for me is how serious an eminent domain proceeding is. <laughs> and that, you know, before we would take one property for something like a national park or something like a public utility um, or the widening of a road, that there are people who, um, there are people at the, on the other end of that and how we go about doing it, um, is really important in terms of maintaining those relationships, uh, with people and main, you know, maintaining some sort of, some sort of, um, order. And I think most of the families I've talked to, um, who are descendants is that, a lot of the bitterness comes from the way it happened. But conversely, it's been really interesting to talk to people about the complexity of that history, that it wasn't really, there's this sense that the National Park Service was a villain in the story, yet the state of Virginia and the people who were invested in economic development in the state of Virginia were responsible for that process going the way that it did. Um, and... And, of course, as governments and administrations changed, some of the policies got changed along the way. And so there's no one entity that was solely responsible. All that added up to a process by which families felt like they had been misinformed or that the process was was misrepresented. And so I think today, kind of paying attention to of that process, there are times when eminent domain has to be used. And so the sort of lesson for today is, well, how can we make that process go as fairly as possible for the people who own the property? This brings us to the end of part one of our podcast on Shannon Doe's history. Sarah Gregg, Katrina Powell, and Audrey Horning helped us understand how the park came to be established in Shenandoah, how the story of its creation is nuanced and complicated. The National Park Service has worked hard in recent decades to preserve the cultural history of the park and honor the sacrifices made by so many people, willingly and unwillingly. The families who were forced to leave the mountains had a great love for the area, and we can understand why as we hike this beautiful place. In part two of Shenandoah's history, we will hear more from Sarah Gregg, Katrina Powell, and Audrey Horning about the role of the Civilian Conservation Corps, FDR's visit to the CCC camps, Audrey Horning's archaeological survey, fires that destroyed many of their remains, and finally, hikes and tips on how and where to see evidence of Shenandoah's cultural history.
Thank you for joining us. And thank you for listening to part one of Shenandoah's history. Please remember to listen to part two to hear the end of the story. As always, you can find our show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com, and like us on Facebook and Twitter, and please give us a review on iTunes. Thank you so much. Thank you.